If you have your Bibles, go with me. Meet me in Luke chapter 1 this morning, and I hope you have the Word of God with you. There's also a sermon guide in your bulletin, and you can follow along and take some notes there. I encourage you to do so. We're currently in a little mini-series in December and maybe a week or two in January as well that we have entitled Tis the Season. We're taking a little break going through the Gospel of Mark together uh, on Sunday mornings to, to go through this. And last week we talked about that Christmas is a season to hope, even when life takes an unexpected turn as it did for Joseph and his world was turned upside down at the news that his uh, spouse wife Mary was great with child and it wasn't his child. And then today we're going to look at Christmas as a season of worship and all of our music today has kind of been geared and focused on that because he alone is worthy of our worship, this Jesus that was born in Bethlehem. And so let's stand together for the reading of God's word this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, the scriptures will be on the screen and you can follow along that way. Beginning in verse number 26 of Luke chapter number 1, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name, say it with me good and loud, Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called, say it loud, the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Would you say that with me? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Father... This is your word, and we acknowledge it as such, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning through the Holy Spirit of God. As your children, as your believers, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us, draw us closer to you, and for those who have never yet put their faith and trust in you alone for their eternal salvation, turning from their sin and their self-righteousness to you, we pray, Lord, that today would be that day where they come and humble themselves before you. And put their faith in you. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in the next few moments through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
As we mentioned last week, the truth is that what should be a season, this Christmas season, that brings incredible confidence and hope as we reflect on the first coming of Jesus to this earth, and we also anticipate the second coming of Jesus. How many of you are anticipating the second coming of Jesus as he has promised in his word? It ought to be a season of hope. It ought to be a season of great anticipation, and yet for so many, it is often a season of despair. It is often a season of hopelessness as people are faced with hard situations and broken relationships while they are surrounded by the smiles and the laughter of so many others. And this is why we must turn our eyes this time of year again and turn our hearts to the true meaning of this season. What is this season all about? Unfortunately, it's become a season of great stress for many. Unfortunately, it's become a season of great worry as they race to collect the perfect gift for each of the people, each of their family members, and as they strive to have the perfect decorations in their homes and in their yards, and they try their best to attend 25 Christmas gatherings in 25 days. How many of you know what I'm talking about? This week we have several for you to be involved in. But so many times, if we're not careful, this time of the year, our, our hearts are filled with anxiety. Our hearts are filled with stress. Our hearts are filled with worry. And why does this happen? This happens ever so slightly in our life as our focus and our attention turns to material things instead of the spiritual things and the real meaning of this season. Let me again go back to the Old Testament for just a moment and remind you of another prophecy of the prophet Isaiah that was given to us, this is always incredible, incredible to me, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Listen to how vividly Isaiah prophesies of his coming. He says in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and then say this last name with me, the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. The truth is, is that this time of season should bring peace. It should be a season where our hearts are turned not to worry, but to worship, not to conflict, but a calm confidence that we have in God. And I want to ask you this morning, what best describes your spirit this time of the year? What best describes your heart today? Is it a heart that is filled with worry, or is it a heart that is filled with worship? The truth of this season is that Jesus came, as we just read, to be Prince of Peace for all who believe, and often this is a season where peace is missing, and the Word of God teaches us a lot about the peace of God, or peace in general. There are three basic uh, truths in the Word of God about peace that I want to point out to you this morning. First of all, that peace is from God. Peace is not from this world. It is not in being secure financially. It's not in, in having all of your relationships intact, we understand this as believers that peace is from God, which is why Paul wrote in many of his writings, but for example, Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, because peace is only from God, then we understand that peace, that we can have peace with God. We can have peace with God. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It says this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is is that, that as sinners, as people who have not accepted the gift of salvation, we do not have peace with God. In fact, the Bible says that we are the enemies of God. So how can we Uh, How can we change from an enemy of God to a friend of God to a child of God to there being great conflict to having peace with God? He says we are justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have salvation, then I would encourage you today to settle this and to have peace with God. But then thirdly, we see that after we have made peace with God, that we can day in And day out, as the children of God, have the peace of God. And how many of you are thankful for the peace of God? The peace of God that comes to believers by way of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds again through Christ Jesus. In our text, we see that Mary received a special visit from the angel, but not just any angel, but from the angel Gabriel. And it's important, Gabriel's name is mentioned here, not by coincidence, nor is it insignificant, because this was the same angel who 550 years prior to coming to Mary came to Daniel and prophesied of a coming Messiah. 550 years, again, before Jesus was born, this same angel, Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read in just a moment, verse 24 through 27 of the prophecy, but let me back up for just a moment and read verse 21 and 22 for you because it mentions his name. It says, Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning... Being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me, and he talked with me, and he said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. And then he says, he gives him in verse number 24, this prophecy, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity... And to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome, troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation 
and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Why do we go back to these Old Testament scriptures? Listen, because this is confirmation that what we hold in our hands today is indeed the word of God and it can be trusted. It is filled with prophecies just like this. And here we see Isaiah making a prophecy 700 years before the Messiah come. Daniel making a prophecy 550 years before the Messiah, the anointed one came. Who is, as we just read in Luke chapter 1, Jesus Christ. God brought his son into the world, listen, at the exact moment and in the exact way that he planned it. And the announcement of Jesus' coming was intended, as we have seen in the scriptures, to bring peace to troubled hearts. Not worry. Both in those days and still in these days. And as we go throughout this season and this coming week that is going to lead us up into Christmas Day, what should be true is that our hearts are filled with worship, not worry. In our homes, I pray that this week will be a time of worship. As we turn our attention away from the commercialism that is all around us to the Christ of this season. Last Sunday we looked at Matthew chapter 1 and we considered how Joseph came to understand the announcement of Jesus. And this week we're going to see how the announcement came to Mary and her response. And we'll see how his presence, how God's presence, how the presence of Jesus brings peace to our troubled lives. The truth is, if we are not experiencing the peace of God, you say, I have no idea what you're talking about. If you're not experiencing the peace of God, it is because you're not experiencing the presence of God. The presence of God brings along with it the peace of God. Notice, first of all, the message of peace, and we see this in verses 26 through 28. Notice that verse 26 tells us that Gabriel was sent at a at a specific time, it says in the sixth month, he was sent to a specific place, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, not insignificant. And in verse 27, that Gabriel was sent to a specific person, a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. But just as the mention of Gabriel's name is not a coincidence, neither was any of the other details of this announcement. Notice, first of all, that it was given, this announcement was given in a humble place, a city of Nazareth. God comes to a little virgin girl in Nazareth. And Nazareth, what we know about it, is that it was a small, poor Jewish village that had no trade routes and it was of little economic significance to the region. It, it was nothing like Jerusalem, which was central to the nation. But again, as we have seen in our study of Esther, God is a sovereign God who is providentially working in our lives. And he doesn't make mistakes. He does everything on purpose. And every detail that is given in this text is given to us on purpose, including where Jesus brought this news to this young virgin. Nazareth is a place that reminds us that great works of God often start in small, seemingly insignificant places in people who have committed their lives to the Lord. And all those who call Jamestown, Tennessee home ought to say, Amen. God works in small places, doesn't He? 
Uh, oftentimes when, when I'm out in other places and I, I'm visiting or speaking or at a pastor's meeting where there are other pastors, often they'll say, now tell me where you're pastoring at. And I'll say, Jamestown, Tennessee. And they'll say, you know, where is that? And I'll have to try to tell them where Jamestown, Tennessee is and how you get off the interstate and then drive 40 minutes. And, and then they ask this crazy question a lot of times, what drew you to Jamestown, Tennessee? A question that pastors ought to know, right? To which I simply reply, God drew us to Jamestown, Tennessee. And God is doing a great work in a small town. We're reminded of that, that no place is insignificant. And where God, uh, God gives us these little details. I love the little song my dad used to sing all the time. Little is much when God is in it. And God wants to use our life as we surrender to him, as we commit our life to him. And Nazareth reminds us that God did not just come to save a certain class of people. God isn't trying to impress the Jewish leaders of the day that had developed their own messianic ideas. Nazareth is a reminder that God often uses the insignificant places and the most unlikely places so that he alone can receive the glory and honor for it, right? So that he can be glorified. I'm often reminded of what Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in case you may think that your role is insignificant or your place is insignificant or what you're doing for the kingdom of God is insignificant because of maybe where you're, you're from or how you grew up. Let me remind you what he told Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which is a scripture I go back to often in my own life, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Notice the reason why, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So if you feel insignificant and you feel small and you feel unworthy, listen, you are in a good position to be used by God because then he can take your life and he can receive the glory and honor from it. In Nazareth, God found a woman who was completely yielded to his purpose for her life. And so this was the place he chose to, to, to use. And that leads us to the second thing about the announcement from Gabriel. Not only was it given in a humble place, but it was given to a holy woman. And we saw this last week. We mentioned it last week in our text that Mary was a pure and holy woman. Again, not sinless. Mary wasn't sinless. But she was set apart for God's use. Look again at, at her response to Gabriel in verse 34. Mary said unto the angel... How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And we won't rehearse all of this again as we went through it in detail last week. But the Bible emphasizes the fact time and time again that Mary was not just a young maid. She was not just a young woman. She was a young virgin. Our Savior was virgin born. And as we mentioned last week, that is very, very important. In a society where the media often mocks commitment to purity, the Bible emphasizes that Mary was a godly woman who can serve as an example to young women of today 
And certainly, listen, virginity before marriage is still the biblical standard. And young people, I encourage you to make it the biblical standard. Thankfully, we understand the grace of God, and it's greater than all of our sin. But our goal, our standard, and the standard for all young people in this building that have yet to be married, that ought to be the goal of your life, that you go to the marriage altar a virgin. The Bible speaks of this in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7. Paul speaks to the young women, but refuse profane and old wives' fables and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. Mary was a surrendered, pure virgin, and she was a woman favored by God. The Bible says, verse 28 of our text says, that Gabriel addressed her with, Hail thou that are highly favored, meaning she was full of grace. What a tremendous testimony that Mary had. Not only do we see the message of peace, but secondly, we see our motivation for worship, which is given to us in verses 31 through 33. Look again and consider what Mary heard from Gabriel in verse number 31. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. This was certainly the most important news that Mary had ever been given. But if we put ourselves in the shoes of Mary, we can understand why her response was what it was. It was a response of human fear. She, she felt this, this good bit of human fear as she asked, how shall this be? Seeing I know not a man, fear of the responsibility that was before her. Last night, our children of our church and some of us adults who act like children, we all gathered in the gym and watched a movie called The Star, and it gave such a great story, animated story, and testimony of, of this very thing. And it emphasized there that perhaps there was fear of the responsibility. Who are we, a carpenter, and this young virgin maid, this young virgin girl that we are to care for and bring into this world the Son of God? It was no, no doubt a massive res responsibility. Fear of what others would think of her and what others would say about her behind her back. Fear of how this would affect her future with Joseph. And the truth is that sometimes when we look at life through blurred lens or we look at life through temporary lens or we look at life simply from a human perspective that God's ways can seem troubling. His will sometimes can seem scary. His call into our lives can can seem beyond us, but just as Joseph had a choice, so did Mary when faced with troubling times. What was, her, what was her choice? Either to trust in human reasoning or to trust in God. And often it comes down to that in life, doesn't it? Trust human reasoning or trust God. And as she listened to the angel, her fear was replaced with calm Worship And Mary heard some things about Christ that would calm her fear and give her a reason to worship. And let me say, 2,000 plus years, these things about Jesus ought to bring comfort and confidence and calmness into our hearts and into our lives. And it ought to cause us this season to worship. And the first thing that we see is his name that gave her peace. His name. He said, his name shall be called Jesus. Again, last week we talked about this. That name had significance. It had meaning because not only did the angel come and tell her that she was going to bring into this, 
this earth, the Son of God. But his name signified that because his name meant he will save. And his name tells us who he is. These are just four basic things about his name that we can rejoice in this morning. First of all, I'm thankful that it's an easy name. (laughs) As you read the Bible, there's some hard names in there. Brother Steve Boutel was reading our text this morning in Esther, and I was not envious of him because in the text there's a lot of hard names. But if you think about it, God gave his son Jesus a name that everybody could understand and was easy to recognize. I'm glad he didn't say, and his name shall be called Jehoshaphat. Or his name shall be called Methuselah. Or his name shall be called Jochebed. But he gives him a name, Jesus, one that the world could know. And people know that it is simple and it is a powerful name. In fact, even those who hate his name know it, don't they? Even those who hate him use his name. His name is an easy name, but secondly, his name is an esteemed name. And we saw it last week, and we'll look at it again in detail tonight in our Christmas Lord's Supper service in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, where Paul writes, God also hath highly exalted him, and notice, and given him a name which is above every name. It's an esteemed name. It's an enduring name. Did you know that for all of eternity, we will be saying this name? For all of eternity, we will be worshiping Jesus. He says in Revelation 22, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so this is a name that we will sing and worship for all eternity. I love the chorus that we sing around here sometimes. Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name. There's something about that name. It is an esteemed name. It is an enduring name. And it says in that little chorus, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about the name of Jesus. It's a powerful name. Also, it's an exclusive name. The name of Jesus is wonderful, and it's more special than any other because it is only through Jesus that we find salvation. It's a name that is special to us because he is the only way to salvation. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus is one we should love. It is one that we should reverence. It is one that we should exalt. We should never get tired of hearing it. We should never get tired of singing it. We should never get tired of speaking it. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love, say it with me, oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Although we live in a society that treats his name carelessly as a curse word and takes offense when Christians pray in the name of Jesus our Savior. We worship when we hear the name of Jesus, even as Mary did as she heard the news of this wonderful name. His name was a motivation, but then notice his magnificent, magnific, magnificence was a motivation of worship. And look again at verse 32 and 33. Mary's fears were calmed as she was told more about this gift from God to the world. It says here, and mark it in your Bibles, he shall be great. 
and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. Forever. And of his kingdom, notice, here it is again. There shall be no end. It is forever. The most magnificent gift that night was not the gifts that the wise men brought to him. The gold, the frankincense, the myrrh. Those were not the greatest gifts given that night. The greatest gift was wrapped in swaddling clothes that night and was given to us in the person of Jesus. God knew mankind so well that he knew exactly what we needed. And he sent us the perfect gift. Have you ever searched and researched for the perfect gift for that person and you couldn't wait for them you anticipated them opening it on Christmas morning you had really researched what they wanted and you thought for sure this was the gift that they wanted but you found out when they opened it that you were wrong now we laugh at our house about this sometimes some of the things that people say when we know that they really didn't want the gift that they opened Oh, wow, man, I definitely wasn't expecting that. Or I'm at a loss of words. Or, man, that is just crazy. That is a crazy gift, James. Thanks a lot. There's a lot of things that we can say, and and, and we we struggle with this at Christmas time. Are they going to like it or not? Listen, This first Christmas, Jesus indeed was the perfect gift, and he was the gift that all of us needed, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When we consider the magnificence of Jesus, we are reminded first of his nature. Why is his name so wonderful, magnificent? It's because he is God. This was the long-awaited Messiah. Do you understand that this is the one that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years and all around them? They missed it. They missed the long-awaited one as we heard last Sunday night. He was not just another baby. He is eternal God. John 1.14 says this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the word. He is the word that is spoken of in this verse, which means that Jesus is the pre-existent son of God. John 1.1, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And Jesus, the word, was God. This baby was not just another baby. He is the eternal God. He is fully God. The virgin birth and the way that Christ came into this world testify that Jesus is much more than a teacher or a prophet. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity of God. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, For in Him, for in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then thirdly, He is called God. We may not fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity in this life, But all we need to know is in the scripture, Jesus is called God. And therefore, because the scripture is the perfect word of God, we trust what it says. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, And again, when he bringeth into the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
A a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Jesus Christ is God. In fact, J.I. Packer wrote this. The Christmas message rests on the staggering fact that the child in the manger was God. Our text reminds us that when Christ came to earth, he was born of the house and lineage of David as as was prophesied that he would be. The last half of the verse, verse 32, says, The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Jesus' name was Israel. I'm sorry, Jesus' nation was Israel. His tribe was Judah, and his family was the house of David. It says in Matthew chapter 1, 1, as it's given the genealogy of Jesus, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And one from the line of David, Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies made to David concerning the coming of an eternal kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see this prophesied, again, long before it ever happened. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, speaking of David, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Here it is again, forever. But those who had long awaited the Messiah, those who had long awaited his coming, rejected him in his first coming. John chapter 1 and verse 11 says this, He came unto his own, the Jews, and his own received him not. That was his first coming. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16 is about the second coming of Jesus as the king of kings where he will establish his kingdom on this earth and bring once and for all Peace to this earth. And it says in Revelation 19, verse 16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it goes on to describe how we will worship him forever. However, those of us who know Jesus as Savior, we are not waiting for Christ's return to worship him. At least we ought not to be. We worship him every day, and we enjoy this Christmas season to get focused on worshiping him and thanking him. Why? Because he came to save us from our sins. As we will reflect on tonight in our service, he came in Bethlehem to die on Calvary. That was the purpose that he came. And then lastly, and we're done, I want you to look at the surrender of Mary given to us in verse 38, a verse that I love. Mary's troubled heart and the multitude of questions that were flooding her mind and her heart, they were quieted as she began to realize who Jesus was. This was the Messiah. This was the one they had waited for. And just like today, her world was full of people who needed the gift that would be given by God through her. And she determined to believe God and to submit herself to him. Notice her response. And if you have a Bible and you like to mark in it or highlight in it, I would encourage you to mark these words in verse number 38. Her response, be it unto me according to thy word. Listen, that ought to be, look here for just a moment, that ought to be what every one of us as children of God say to God's word and God's will. 
Be it unto me according to thy word. Have your way in my life. She surrendered, first of all, to God's will. And no doubt God's plan could have unfolded with or without Mary's consent. We know that because he is God. But he asked us to yield our wills to him. He gives us the gift of free will. Even Jesus did this as an example on his way to Calvary in Luke chapter 22. Jesus, it says, says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. William Barclay once said that the most popular prayer is thy will be changed. But the greatest prayer is thy will be done. Thy will be done. And that's what Mary was saying with her words. Even though she couldn't comprehend the magnitude of God's plan, she essentially is saying, Lord, you're at work here, and and I don't know how exactly you're at work, and I don't know what you are doing or what you want to do through me, but here I am. Whatever you want to do through me, I am a surrendered, willing vessel. Be it unto me according to thy word. She was surrendered to God's will, and she was surrendered to God's word. Mary's choice, again, came down to who was she going to trust? Was she going to trust human reasoning, or was she going to trust the word of God? Let me ask you in your daily life, Christian, are you trusting human reasoning? Are you trusting the word of God? Is your confidence in a, in a human kingdom, or is your confidence in the kingdom of God? We rest today, and, and we each and every Sunday, and each and every time we meet, we open this book, and we, we read it, not just out of ritual, We read it as the authority of our life. We read it because this is God's instruction manual, his love letter to you and I as his believers. Andrew Murray said, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. And we will find, as Mary did, That when we determine to trust God's word, we are putting ourselves in hands that are more than capable of caring for us. Which is why this Christmas season, worry, not uh, worship, characterizes our lives when we fail to surrender to him. When you're trying to hold on to your life, you better worry. When you're trying to control your life... You better worry. But when you surrender to God and say, God, here I am. Be it unto unto thee according to thy word. Whatever you want in my life, here it is. I surrender to you. Then you no longer have to worry because you are in good hands. You can trust him. And as we trust God's word, we learn that it never fails. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. 1 Kings 8, 56, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not, listen, there hath not failed one word of all his good promises. Neither will they fail which he promised by the hand of Moses' servant. And Mary yielded herself to be used of God. She was able, through that surrender, to get a front row seat to the birth of the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And this caused her to worship him. I want you to look down in the text. 
to verse number 46, and we're done. Look at verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. It says, and Mary said, this is her response, my soul doth magnify the Lord. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. And as we sang this morning, holy is his name. Holy is his name, for his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath hope in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And that is why... Church, I say this morning, he alone is worthy of our praise. And this time of year ought not to be a time of stress and worry, but it ought to be a season of worship in our homes, in our hearts, as we surrender our lives to the Lord. And as you make your Christmas list and as you check them twice, make sure that you are setting yourself up for a season of worship. Are you setting the table For a season of worship? Or are you setting the table for a season of worry and stress? He's come to be the Prince of Peace. What a gift he is. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Listen, this is the greatest gift exchange you will ever experience because Jesus says I will take your sin and you can have my righteousness and by the way that's the only way to have eternal life to come and surrender to come and to confess your sin and say God I repent of my sin I trust only in your death and resurrection I will take your righteousness I don't deserve it but I accept it as a gift because you took my sin on the cross. It's the greatest gift exchange of all time. And that's what this verse is saying. God made Jesus to be sin for you and I, who Jesus knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.